Welcome to Understand Nostradamus. I'm your host, Michael Fuck. This discussion will involve two quatrains from the 1555 publication of Le Prophetes by Michel Nostradamus. These two quatrains describe events pertaining to the execution of the last emperor of all of the Russias, Tsar Nicholas II and his immediate family, thus ending the 300-year royal line of the Romanovs, rulers of Russia. This is quatrain 110. That's century one, quatrain 10. There's also a quatrain about the deep regret felt by the Tsar for not killing his adversary when he had the chance. This is quatrain 136. That's century one, quatrain 36. It's about an event that leads up to the execution. It's not even that they intersect, but they are both about Tsar Nicholas. There are a lot of quatrains about Russia. Russia was an ally of France. France is the one who loaned Russia most of the money for their expansions several times throughout history. They were an ally, they were a friend, and there are many quatrains about the Russian Revolution and subsequent civil war. That's the Reds and the Whites. Also about Tsar Nicholas's adversary, Vladimir Lenin, whose last name was Yulianov. Before he ended up with Lenin, he used many pseudonyms, but ended up choosing Lenin. This is one more reason why Nostradamus couldn't name every bad guy in history. Most of them used made-up names and would have made up a different name had he named them. Hitler's last name wasn't Hitler, and Napoleon's mother named him Napoleon. So had there been a warning in Corsica at the time, like, hey, didn't you read that book by Nostradamus? Oh, yeah, actually, everybody did. So I don't think she would have named him Napoleon. She would have named him something else, and that's the bad guy that would have been in history, not Napoleon. And we all would have been saying, oh, stupid Nostradamus warning about Napoleon. It was really this other Ricky Bonaparte who was the madman of, yeah, there you go. He couldn't name every bad guy from history because they would have changed their name. There is even a quatrain about the execution by hanging of Lenin's older brother, Alexander Yulianov, in 1887 for an assassination plot and several attempts to kill the Tsar Alexander III, Nicholas II's father. So this is why Nicholas was target number one for Lenin from the age of 17, and why Lenin becomes the adversary in Quatrain 136. Lenin would refer to the Tsar in his propaganda as the number one enemy of the Russian people. So let's take a look at the Quatrains. I start out with a simple examination of the words chosen because Nostradamus makes it clear in the preface that any rational being can figure the stuff out. You don't have to be a man of letters or linguistics or even an expert with ancient French, more like ancient Greek and Roman history and, well, the last 400 years of current events. Let's take a look at Quatrain 110. What most of you have as the translation, I call it the internet version, many people do, it is on several internet sites. There's even a book printed from this PDF. If you just look up Nostradamus PDF, you can find it. Here is that translation. Now, here's the problem. The translation's wrong. And the prophecy that goes around from this, and it's gone around widely, it hasn't happened yet. But the actual prophecy has happened. It happened in 1918. Let's take a look at it. The very first line 
a coffin is put into the vault of iron. Well, I'm afraid the very first line doesn't say that. It says, Serpens transmis dans la cage de feu. That says serpents in a cage. La cage de feu, that's the cage of iron. That's actually his term for prison cell or incarceration. So the original is D-E-N-S. It was later changed to Dons because people were like, what is actually Dons? It's about having 10 syllables. And so there's a number of abbreviations, but with a definite clue as to what it is. This would be the Dons, which would be within or inside. The second line where seven children of the king are held where it says enfants septans, that word septans is not the word for seven. It means seven saints. Septans is the word for seven saints. And I don't think that's any coincidence because in the year 2000, the Russian Orthodox Church martyred the entire family, all seven of them. Who are the seven sainted children of the king? Who's the king? Well, that king would be Frederick William II, king of Prussia, or Christian IX, king of Denmark. See, these families were all related. Nicholas was the nephew of Queen Victoria and the son of the king of Russia. Tsar is their word for ruler. It comes from Caesar. Nicholas II is from a direct line of kings since Mikhail in 16. 13. This is the Romanov dynasty. He is a king himself and the last autocratic leader. She, the German princess of Hesse-Darmstadt, and is the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. She's the cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm, the leader of Germany, who also happens to be the grandson of Queen Victoria. Nicholas was more German, Danish, and English and their remains, along with three of their children, are at the St. Peter and Paul Fortress, the original citadel of St. Petersburg, started by Peter the Great in 1703. It's now a museum. So the third and fourth line are, the ancestors and forebears will come forth from the depths of hell, lamenting to see thus dead the fruit of their line. All the former czars are entombed in the floors, in the crypt at the Catherine Chapel. And if you see the inside of this, it's metal and has a grate on the floor made of steel, and they lower the coffin into it, and two of the children still have not been lowered into it, but the remains have been found. We'll get to that in the rest of the story. But this is the whole point. All of the coffins from the previous czars and their families are entombed in the floors and could easily come up from the floors to see these last two, the Tsarevich Alexei and his sister, put into the crypt. This hasn't happened yet. So that would mean this quatrain hasn't happened yet. The problem is the first line says serpents transmitted to the inside of a prison where the seven sainted children of kings are being held. And that's what happened in 1918. But it all starts with Tsar Nicholas II's grandfather being murdered in an assassination when he was 12. His father took over as Tsar, Alexander III, and he toughened things up 
based on the fact that he just watched his father get killed. So Tsar Nicholas grew up very protected, sheltered, somewhat isolated, very well educated, but left to do what he wanted to, play games, learn sports, hunt, while his father did great things for Russia. He greatly expanded the school systems along with a man that worked for him named Ilya Yulianov, who happened to be the father of Alexander and Vladimir Yulianov, who later became Vladimir Lenin. Both of these boys were taught in school and were honor students, excelled very well. Both of these students were the student of Fyodor Kerensky. Fyodor Kerensky was the father of Alexander Kerensky, who later became the first provisional leader of the revolutionary government for Russia. But then I'm getting ahead of myself. It starts in September 1894, when Nicholas' father is diagnosed with nephritis, an acute inflammation of the kidneys. He dies on October 19, 1894, 49 years old. Russia was at its own peak of economic and political power. In 1894, November, Nicholas was not only made czar, he married the love of his life, Alexa who took the name Alexandra Fyodorovna. They had waited eight years to marry. Nikki had ascended the throne by November 1894. Vladimir Yulianov was running the name Nikolai Petrovich at the time and was leading a worker's circle. They affectionately referred to him as Starik, which means the old man. And you'll see that's the same old man that he's referred to up there in Century 8. But we'll get to that later. He had been going to all the major cities in Western Europe and seeking out all the revolutionary and Marxist expatriates living there who had been exiled or ran away from Russia. He returned to Russia with a stash of illegal revolutionary literature. He went around from city to city, and he knew he was being monitored by the police, but he still distributed literature to striking workers. Anywhere he could find a crowd, he'd get up on a box. He became involved in producing a news sheet, The Workers' Cause. He was among the 40 activists arrested on the night before the first issue's publication and charged with sedition. They put him in prison for over a year and a half before they sentenced him, awaiting trial. This was the first real exposure to an entire subclass of people he had glorified but never really met. Eventually, he was sentenced to three years in exile in Siberia. This was the first chance that the Tsar could have dealt with him. The Tsar was in power by now. This was 1897, and he was sentenced to three years in Siberia, just exiled. And in fact, he was allowed to get there on his own. He went with his mom and his sister. He took 11 weeks to travel there. He ended up bringing his girlfriend there, and they got married, and they lived there with her mom, and they wrote books. But as soon as he could, he went back to the Western European cities where he could organize dissidents and raise money for his cause. It was in 1904, under the advice of cousin Kaiser Wilhelm, that Nikki had Russia expand the empire into Japan's territory. Japan attacked Russia at Port Arthur, which is an entire additional quatrain, and proceeded to invade the mainland subsequently getting Russia to withdraw. This was a horrible defeat for Russians. They were very upset about it, and this did not go over well with the public. It started a revolution that the Tsar could only calm by making an agreement 
to grant freedoms to the people. On October 30, 1905, Nicholas II signed the famous manifesto on the improvement of state order. Here, the people were granted freedom of speech, press, personality, and conscience, freedom of assembly, and to form unions, and the state Duma was created as a legislative body. The Duma had powers of Congress and many powers of legislation, but could be broken up by the Tsar if the Tsar deemed it against him. After this set of decrees, Vladimir Lenin thought it would be okay for him to re-enter the country without being arrested. But he had been producing a lot of propaganda and smuggling it into Russia. So he was wanted. And when the Tsar's government disbanded for the second time in May 1907, he knew this was it for him. They were cracking down. Lenin was in Finland, which was a semi-autonomous part of the empire at the time. But he got out and he eventually made it to Switzerland. This was the second time the Tsar had an occurrence and an opportunity to eliminate his enemy. By this time, Tsar Nicholas and his wife, Alexandra, had five children. Their youngest, Alexei, was born in 1905. They lived an extremely extravagant and luxurious lifestyle. They went on holiday with all the other royalty of Europe. They were all cousins. So when World War I broke out, it was Cousin Willie declaring war on Nicholas, who was married to Willie's direct cousin, Alexandra, and also declaring war on Cousin George, his first cousin. Tsar Nicholas and King George V looked very similar. They were first cousins because their mothers were sisters. Their mothers were Alexandra of Denmark and Princess Dagmar of Denmark, who became Maria Fyodorovna, Nicholas II's mother. Nicholas and his wife communicated to each other in English because it was their common language. She never really learned Russian. He never really learned German, but they both spoke and wrote in English really well. So that's why we have a record of all of their communication. It's all written in English. They drank English tea. So this war was really a war of egos more than anything and commitments. Well, it didn't go well for Russia. It didn't go well for anybody. The people of Russia had had enough by February of 1917 when food rations and other rations were announced. On March 8th, International Women's Day, women decided to strike. They filled the streets. Many joined them by the end of the day. When the Tsar heard about this, he said send in the guards, which was a very flawed judgment because the crowd was mostly women and the guards wouldn't do anything about it and ended up joining them. This was the beginning of the Russian Revolution. So on March 15, 1917, Nicholas II abdicated the throne to his brother, Mikhail, who turned it down, which left things entirely up to the provisional government. The new provisional government placed the royal family under house arrest at Sarke Selo, which is Russian for the Tsar's village. There were arrangements to be made by the provisional government for the Tsar to leave Russia, even though he thought he'd be able to stay in Crimea and just live out his life. The invitation was made originally from England, Russia's ally in World War I, but was soon declined. 
by King George himself, Nikki's cousin, who he'd spent summers growing up with. Nikki's father didn't prepare him for the job. Nikki's father was always working himself. Alexander III thought he was going to live much longer than he did. Georgie Boy's father was a bit of a playboy. So his grandmother, Queen Victoria, made sure he had a series of mentors around him and a special secretary, Lord Staffordham. One of the major reasons Lord Staffordham gave for the decline of the invitation, besides the idea that it might lead people to think about revolution in England, according to Lord Staffordham, the king had received many letters, as he said, from all walks of life who voiced their disapproval of such a person coming to their country. This was one of the major reasons for the decline of the Romanov family to leave Russia and be exiled in England, as Kaiser Wilhelm was exiled in the Netherlands. He lived out the rest of his life. The point here is those letters didn't come from people in England. They came from Lenin's propaganda machine, which was funded by the Germans. But it was Alexander Kerensky, leader of the provisional government, who actually decided to send Nicholas and his family far away to Tobolsk for their own safety. It was the Germans that let Lenin and his cohorts pass through Germany and get back into Russia. And the provisional government knew that and went to arrest him and he evaded them and eventually raised the Bolsheviks to storm the Winter Palace which was essentially the stronghold of the provisional government, the seat of Alexander Kerensky. So Kerensky's father, Fyodor, was Lenin's influence in high school, and Lenin was an honor student. Fyodor said very, very good things about him. And here he was attacking Alexander Kerensky, and Alexander Kerensky had to flee for his life, flee St. Petersburg, never to return. Lenin and the Bolsheviks, now controlled Russia. Lenin ended the war with Germany and signed away 300 years worth of gains that Russia had just made, signed away huge tracts of land on the western borders and a third of the population. This was sure to start a civil war, and of course it did. It was at this point in 1918, while being confined in Tobolsk, that Tsar Nicholas was overheard by the tutor, Pierre Gelliard, who was there to still tutor the children. He overheard the Tsar voicing regrets. He said, up to that point, the Tsar had kept himself in a very positive, forward-looking state, but he could see the intensity and the effect that all of this had on him, that his abdication didn't save Russia at all. It made everything worse, in his opinion. In Pierre's own writing, as well as the Tsar's diary, which he always kept faithfully, which is available, you can find this on the internet, you can see that he has regrets at this point about disgrace. He would murmur disgrace to himself, suicide for Russia. He would say things like, to think that they called his wife a traitor, because they did. They felt his wife was a traitor because she was German, Tsar Nicholas openly voices regret. Century 1, Quatrain 36. Too late the king will repent that he did not put his adversary to death, but he will soon come to agree with far greater things, which will cause all his line to die. Take a look at the lines. Line 1, later, 
the monarch will come to repent. Line two, for not having put to death his adversary, who would be Vladimir Lenin. The third line says, but will come much higher consenting. What it means is, but consents eventually to far worse. That all his blood by death will undo. That's line four. The line is also translated, that leads to the end of an historic family. I guess they call that a transliteration. Later in the spring of 1918, the Zorna's family were being transferred east and the train was hijacked by the Ural Bolsheviks. They wanted control, or it seemed they wanted control, over the family. They were transferred to a house in Yekaterinburg, the Ipatiev house. The house was renamed to the House of Special Purpose and was run by a new set of guards led by Yakov Yurovsky. These guards made life hell for the Romanov family, really harassed the girls, made life extremely difficult and humiliating for Tsar Nicholas. At 1.30 in the morning, on July 17, 1918, the family was woken up and told to get ready to be moved again. They were led down to the basement of the house and told to line up against the wall for a picture. That picture was taken, and then a group of men came in. They all whipped out pistols, and they were supposed to shoot each individual in front of them. But if you look at the picture and you look at the damage left behind, you'll notice that none of the men who were in front of the girls and the child wanted to shoot the girl and the child. And so even they shot to their left, they shot all the men. So you can see even as the men fell, they still kept shooting the men. They ran out of bullets. They'd fill the whole room with smoke. It was a mess. They couldn't figure out what was going on for a while. So when the smoke cleared, they realized that the Tsarevich Alexei and three of his sisters were still alive. Yakov Yurovsky took out another gun and shot the boy three times until he stopped crying and died. The three girls were stabbed with bayonets. They had sewn all of their jewelry inside of their undergarments, and this blocked the original bullets that would have hit them and even stopped the bayonets at first. So the soldiers undressed them and finished the job. They later took the bodies out, put them in a truck, took them to the tool woods, dumped them down a mine, and then went out and bragged about it. When Yakov Yurovsky woke up the next day and figured out what had happened, they had to go back, pull the bodies, and then it was just gruesome. They took the smallest two, they separated them out. They tried burning them. They tried cutting them up. It was all taking too long. So they just buried the two of them there. They poured sulfuric acid all over the remains. They buried the two right there. They took the rest of the group about 70 meters away into what was a small ditch or ravine. They covered them in sulfuric acid, buried them there. The remains of which weren't discovered till at first 1979, then dug up in 1991, and then put into the crypt eventually after they were proven through DNA. Two of the children were missing, and so they were not included. But the remains that were there were all interned to the crypt. 
in the year 2000, they were all martyred. So now the remains that have been found of the remaining two, those two are saints. And so the Orthodox Church doesn't really know how to bury them unless prompted by the leader of Russia to get it done, which might happen soon. So that quatrain, which isn't really the quatrain that goes all over the internet as the quatrain 110, that hasn't happened yet. So I don't know if that's part of the collective consciousness or what, but the quatrain actually says snakes transmitted into the prison cell where seven sainted children of the kings are held, the ancestors and fathers who are the forebears and czars will come up out from below just to perish from seeing the fruit of their line dead and crying, some dead and some crying. The event described in that quatrain, quatrain 110, happened at 1.45 in the morning, July 17th, 1918, in Yekaterinburg, Russia. Nostradamus was able to assemble these details because he was able to read the headlines from our history. It's a way of saying to you, listen, I knew about all these things. Believe me when I tell you about this other thing because I found out the same way. And if you learn to read the quatrains, you can find out what that thing is. And it's there with also a solution that Nostradamus left. He took action, and he's asking you to take action too. And don't let these things happen. He highlights nothing in the future is definite. You have the chance. And thanks for listening.